Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. In the middle of Southeast Asia, there's an island called Borneo. Despite being the third largest island in the world, and having some of the planet's oldest rainforests, most people have never heard of it. That's probably because Borneo isn't its own country. It's politically divided between Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei. If you were to visit Borneo in the late 1970s or early 80s, you'd find a lush, breathtaking landscape. Tall, tropical trees dotted with colorful birds, sun bears with their cubs trailing behind them, clouded leopards chasing their prey through the brush, Bornean elephants rolling in the mud. You might even come across members of the Dayak or Penan, some of the last indigenous groups on Earth to still live completely off the land, just as their ancestors did centuries ago. But nowadays, the island looks completely different. Bulldozers and tractors are the new giants traipsing the land. Animals are disappearing at unprecedented rates, along with the jungle they call home. And many factions of indigenous groups have been forced to relocate. Today's story isn't just about the disappearance of a man. It's about the disappearance of an entire island, a whole civilization, and its way of life. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'm introducing you to a Swiss activist named Bruno Manzer. In the 1980s, he lived in Borneo amongst the indigenous Penan and helped them to fight back against the logging companies encroaching on their land. After two decades of dedicating himself to the cause, Bruno took one final trek into the jungle and never returned. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. In 
It's impossible to talk about Bruno Manzer without also discussing the Penan, one of the last nomadic hunter-gatherer groups in the world. Today, only around 300 Penan are still living a nomadic lifestyle, while the other 12,000 have settled in about 70 small communities across Borneo. They share everything, from hand-rolled cigarettes to monkeys they hunt and eat, to sago, an edible paste made from the palm trees. Their nights are spent dancing to the tune of handmade bamboo flutes. They sport ritual tattoos and believe the rainforest is full of powerful magic. Bruno Manzer chronicled his experience living with the Penan in such vivid detail, you can practically smell their nightly campfires and feel the itch of his mosquito bites. But in all of Bruno's letters and journals, the thing that stood out to me most was this. In the six years he lived among the Penan, he never once saw them argue. They wouldn't even speak when someone else was talking. The respect they had for one another was just that profound. So I want to honor that today by not interrupting Bruno's story. I want to unpack certain aspects of his time in the jungle. But first, we should experience his entire journey, start to finish. As a child in 1960s Switzerland, Bruno felt an intense bond with nature. He spent nights outside on his family's balcony, sleeping on a bed of branches, even during the freezing cold Swiss winter. He'd go out during the day and come back caked in mud, holding insects, reptiles, and even fish. By the time he was in his 20s, around the late 1970s, his parents convinced him to go to medical school. He enrolls in the MD program at Basel University in Switzerland, but it's not what he wants. There's still this call to the wild ringing in his ears. While researching the jungle in a university textbook, Bruno stumbles on a passage about the Penan. It's the first time he's ever heard of them, but in that moment, it's like his whole life path unfolds before him. While his colleagues are dreaming of becoming doctors, Bruno realizes he just wants to become Penan. Which is how, in 1984, 30-year-old Bruno finds himself hiking through the mud and thorny underbrush of Borneo. He spent the last six months traveling around Southeast Asia, and he's finally made it to the northwestern corner of the island, a region called Sarawak. The area is ruled by the Malaysian government. Bruno came prepared, at least as prepared as someone can be for an indefinite stay in the jungle. He's got a backpack with a fishing net, a machete, a hammock, a rain tarp, 20 pounds of rice, and a journal. He's more than a day's walk from any road or airport, but that distance from civilization is exactly what he set out to find. For Bruno, this experience isn't just about survival, it's about liberation. Even as he stops every few hours to pry leeches off his bare legs, he can't stop smiling. That first night, he crawls up into his hammock and dozes off while playing his harmonica. He knows if he just keeps searching, he'll come across the indigenous Penan. But by day six, Bruno's already beginning to starve. He has plenty of rice, but can't find enough water to boil it. There's no game to catch and cook, and he has no way to tell if he's even remotely close to finding the Penan, since they're nomadic and always on the move. Cut to day eight. 
a torrential rain falls over the jungle. Bruno is able to trap enough water to cook rice and feed himself. It's enough to keep going for at least one more night. After the meal, he climbs a tree to get a bird's eye view of his surroundings and figure out what to do next. And that's when he sees it, smoke from a campfire. Back on the ground, he notices a series of footprints not too far away. Bruno follows them until dusk, then sets up camp for the evening. In the morning, he wakes to the faint sound of voices chattering in the distance. Bruno calls out, then sees a man and woman peering at him through the trees. Spooked by the sight of a westerner, they retreat back into the woods. For an hour, Bruno trails them at a safe distance until he can smell their campfire smoke. In a clearing, he spots an encampment of 13 people. It's the elusive Panan. And just like that, Bruno is home. Bruno's first instinct is to give them some rice as a peace offering. Then he takes out his wooden flute and plays a song. This gets him small smiles from a few of the Panan, but still, they're wary of him. He tries communicating with the very little Malay he knows, but the Panan speak their own language. And aside from being allowed to share meals with the group, Bruno's mostly a fly on the wall waiting for permission to actually participate in their customs. It's 10 days of this before any of the Panan even share their names with Bruno. But that moment signals a shift, and from then on, he becomes more and more accepted by the group. He's invited on boar hunts, taught how to make blowpipes, and to mark his trail in the jungle. The more he assimilates with the Panan, the more Bruno loses his sense of time. In his journal, he writes that the Panan, quote, live completely in the moment. They have no calendar and they don't know their age or place of birth, a detail that only makes Bruno fall more in love with the Panan. Before long, he's speaking in their native tongue and walking barefoot through the jungle, sporting just a loincloth and his wireframe glasses. In a way, he holds fast to indigenous traditions more than some modern Panan do. He comes across other nomadic factions of the group, who every once in a while sport t-shirts and sneakers. Their hair is cut short, unlike the traditional bowl cut of their ancestors. Sometimes they even wear watches, completely contradicting this age-old tradition of not keeping time. Bruno doesn't seem to judge this. After all, he's the guest here. But it must be strange for him, who purposely abandoned all sense of modernity to see these relics of his old life popping up in the jungle. And there are other aspects of the culture that he didn't anticipate. For one thing, the life expectancy of the Panan is only about 40, so saying goodbye is almost always too soon. Hunger is a constant threat, as are malaria and snake bites. But Bruno accepts that all of this is a part of the experience. Each hardship he overcomes makes him feel closer to the Panan, and his commitment to the Panan way of life seems to earn the tribe's respect. Bruno feels fully accepted. In December 1984, Bruno's visa expires, meaning he's now in Borneo illegally. But he's not concerned about overstaying his welcome. That's trivial compared to what the Panan are now facing. Massive deforestation. 
Bruno has a contact in the jungle that sends his mail, so he pens a letter to his brother back in Switzerland explaining the dire situation. He writes, The jungle here is in danger. If there isn't a miracle soon, the bulldozers will roll over the last untouched areas. And in a few months, they will reach our camp. I'm trying to mobilize the Penan against it, but for now, I listen in the quietness. By April 1985, logging companies are moving closer to Long Saradin, an indigenous settlement in Sarawak close to many Penan camps. But the Penan don't read or write in the traditional sense. They communicate through storytelling and subtle markings in the jungle. Bruno becomes their de facto secretary. He drafts a letter on their behalf to the government and logging companies. The Penan requests to build a preserve in the jungle, a safe space where they can continue living, as they have for centuries, without the fear of loggers encroaching on their land. The problem is, the politicians and the logging industry are thought to be in bed together. Since the day Abdul-type Mahmud became Deputy Chief Minister of Sarawak, he's been handing out logging concessions like candy to friends and family. Bruno's convinced it's basically a big money-making scheme. Deforestation is lining their pockets. So, as you can imagine, the Penance proposal is ignored. But Bruno Manzer is persistent. He keeps writing. And by December 1985, most government officials have heard about the white man living with the Penan, the one sporting John Lennon glasses. Bruno also teaches the Penan resistance tactics he's seen while living in the West. By 1986, Bruno's become a real thorn in the government side, especially after they catch wind that he's orchestrated a meeting between the Penan chiefs and other indigenous groups in the area. They're planning to band together and perform a set-in to blockade the logging roads. Luckily, there's an easy fix. Bruno's visa is expired. Get rid of Bruno Manzer, keep logging. It's as simple as that. On Bruno's way to the meeting, he's spotted by a police inspector. The officer calls for backup, and before Bruno knows it, he's in handcuffs. They hold him at gunpoint, put him in a car, and start driving him back to the city. The journey should take several hours, but 90 minutes in, the Jeep runs out of gas. While waiting for more backup, one of the officers searches for a place to relieve himself, so Bruno follows to do the same. In that moment, Bruno dares the impossible. He turns to the officer beside him and asks, do you want to follow me? Before the policeman can respond, Bruno sprints into the brush, down a hill and towards the river. The authorities fire several rounds into the forest, but Bruno's long gone. He spends the next 48 hours navigating back to Long Saradin to reunite with the Penan. But now they have another problem. Bruno's a fugitive, a wanted man, and the Malaysian government will stop at nothing to make his life a living hell. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com slash cults. 
This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com cults. And on behalf of everyone here at Parcast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. It's March 1987. 32-year-old Bruno Manzer has spent the last three years living with the Panan. Since then, logging industries have been getting forceful, leveling more of the rainforest every day. Now, a hundred indigenous families are all that stand between the rainforest and a line of trucks and loggers with chainsaws, literally. Men, women, and children have established barricades at 12 different locations in the jungle. With straw huts and campfires burning along the road, they're prepared to stay as long as it takes to keep the trucks from pillaging their land, to stop corporate greed from destroying their home. This type of direct action is out of character for the Panan, so the government assumes it's not of their own volition. According to Bruno's biographer, Carl Hoffman, government officials always look down at the Panan as uneducated, poverty-stricken, and cultureless. They were considered by many to be the lowest members of Malaysian society. So when they start taking on one of the richest, most powerful industries in Southeast Asia, it's assumed they've been encouraged to revolt by the puppet master Bruno Manzer. In a way, the government is right. Bruno certainly teaches the Panan different resistant techniques to fight for their rights and their land. But when it comes to putting boots on the ground, the Panan show up in droves with or without Bruno. They are the ones waging this war. In fact, Bruno knows better than to stand beside them at the blockades. The risk is too great. Bruno's a wanted man. His picture is on every corkboard in every Sarawak police station. Getting deported could mean the end of the fight for the Panan, which means Bruno has to lay low and organize from the shadows. For a while, this works. Over the next eight months, the blockades grow. By October 1987, 2,500 indigenous people are stationed across 23 sites, barricading loggers throughout Sarawak. But by November, government officials are doing everything they can to remove the blockades. They offer bribes and false promises to the indigenous people, many of whom have been at the blockade so long, they've depleted the local resources and are now having a hard time finding food. Money from the government is beginning to sound like the only option for long-term survival, the only way to preserve their culture, even if it means losing their land. Meanwhile, police are still scanning the area around the barricades for any sign of Bruno Manzer. To them, if he's gone, so are their problems, which is how Bruno ends up with a reported $15,000 bounty on his head 
Knowing this, Bruno spends several weeks at a time wandering the jungle alone. He stays far away from the Pan Am so he doesn't get himself caught or ruin their progress. But the loggers continue to push in with force. During just one of his absences, 4,000 tons of timber are chopped and hauled away from the rainforest. At that point, Bruno considers turning himself in. He can't help but feel like he's part of the reason the government is so combative towards the Penan. He believes his surrender will make things better for them. Besides, he misses his family back in Switzerland. His parents are aging, and he knows how dangerous it is to be out in the jungle alone. At one point, he suffers a venomous snake bite that nearly kills him. He expresses these concerns through letters, which Bruno's loved ones see as cries for help. If they don't make a move soon, Bruno could wind up dead. So they gather in a small apartment in Basel, Switzerland, and devise a plan to extradite him. It won't be as easy as flying a helicopter over the jungle. It has to be discreet if they want to get him past Malaysian authorities without risking his arrest. Bruno's friend, Georges Ruick, an adventurer himself, offers to travel to Malaysia to smuggle him out. After a few connecting flights across the world, Georges lands in Lombong, a city in northern Sarawak. He makes contact with a friend of Bruno's, the same man who's been sending his letters back home. They drive for several hours down logging roads, further into the jungle, and towards a Penang camp. George settles into his small tin hut, hangs up his hammock, and before long, in walks Bruno. George barely recognizes his old friend, who spent the better part of a decade in the bush. The following morning, George cuts and dyes Bruno's hair. He has him trade in his loincloth and wire-framed glasses for a blue polo shirt and a new pair of specs. It's a full-on transformation, and soon enough, Bruno looks like a Western tourist. A few days after that, he's taken to the airport. Georges has secured Bruno a fake passport with a new identity, which should get him past security. Plus, there's a huge sporting event happening in Malaysia that day. So police are fixated on the televisions, not the most wanted man in the country. Miraculously, their plan works. Bruno manages to slip by unrecognized and board a plane out of the country for the first time in six years. The culture shock back home is severe. The modern world is loud and abrasive. After spending six years in a settlement that doesn't argue, the sirens and traffic horns of 1990 Switzerland give Bruno a permanent headache. Despite the difficulties of readjusting, he wastes no time in helping his chosen family in Borneo. He creates the Bruno Manzer Fund, a nonprofit that campaigns for preserving the rainforest and provides assistance for indigenous groups in Borneo. Hoping to draw awareness for the cause, he flies out a few of his Penan friends to accompany him on a world tour. He visits the First Lady in France, speaks to 20,000 people at a Grateful Dead concert in London. He connects with US Vice President Al Gore, who tries to push a resolution through the Senate calling for Malaysia to act immediately in defending its indigenous people. But when little comes of these calls to action, Bruno's efforts get more extreme. In June 1991, at the G7 summit, a high-profile meetup to discuss global issues, 
Bruno ties himself to a 30-foot lamppost outside the convention, calling for the participants to take action. He's quickly arrested by London police. When they ask what he's advocating against, he points to the wooden table resting beneath their elbows and says, quote, This is what I'm protesting against. I am protesting the fact that you have made this table out of wood from the rainforest. The following year, Bruno lands an unlikely meeting with the Prime Minister of Malaysia, who's traveled to Rio de Janeiro for the Earth Summit. After an hour-long private discussion, Bruno leaves feeling dejected, like there's little he can do to persuade the leader to protect his own people. But he's gotta try something. So he climbs a 120-foot statue over Maracana Stadium and begs the 100,000 fans below to save the rainforest. Next, in 1993, he and a friend stage a sit-in before the Swiss parliament. They go on a hunger strike to get officials to ban the import of tropical hardwoods. Bruno stays out there for 60 days and almost dies. Finally, his mother tells her withering son, enough's enough. Then in 1999, Bruno plans his biggest stunt yet. He knits a white plush lamb, a symbol of peace, which he plans to give to Sarawak's highest member of office, Chief Minister Abdul Taib Mahmud, the same guy who's been handing out all those logging concessions the past 15 years. Bruno flies to the capital city of Kuching, on March 29th, he paraglides over the city with the stuffed lamb in tow. He lands just outside of Mahmud's residence and is immediately arrested and deported. In many ways, this is the final straw for Bruno. After years of dedicating his life to this cause, he's gotten nowhere. No one will listen. No one will empathize or take action. In fact, Borneo's rainforest is disappearing at unprecedented rates. Deforestation has only accelerated since he first arrived in Sarawak in 1984. Sure, the world knows about the Penan now, but Bruno feels like his efforts have done little to preserve them or their way of life. Bruno's defeated, hopeless, heartbroken. In November 1999, he sends his friend George a postcard. He tells him he's returning to the island to be with the Penan again. He isn't sure when he'll be back, but to George, the trip feels too sudden. He senses something is wrong, especially after Bruno says goodbye to everyone else he knows, almost like he plans to never see any of them again. He even phones one friend and admits he's depressed. He says he's tried everything he can, and he's not sure what else to do. In February 2000, Bruno sneaks back into Borneo by way of Indonesia. He reunites with the Penan and sends a picture of himself to Georges. It's Bruno, in a canoe, flashing a thumbs up. And it leaves Georges feeling terrified. Bruno never sends photos of himself to anyone. Georges says it's like Bruno is trying to prove he's okay when Georges knows he isn't. That May, Bruno asks a Penan man and his son to escort him through the jungle. He wants to climb the holy mountain of Batu Lawi, a peak he tried to summit before in Sarawak and failed. Upon hiking through the jungle and coming within sight of the mountain, Bruno tells them he wants to take the rest of the journey alone. 
the Penan man and his son say goodbye as Bruno continues through the brush. He heads towards the base of the mountain, and he's never seen again. In 2000, John Kunsley, the business manager for the Bruno Manzer Fund, is irritated. Bruno promises to send him updates from Sarawak, but it's been months since he ventured back into the rainforest, and there's been no word. As he looks into it further, Kunsley learns Bruno called an important meeting amongst the Penan and other indigenous leaders weeks ago. Only Bruno never showed. Not getting in touch with the foundation is one thing, but Bruno wouldn't ditch out on the Penan. It's not entirely clear when, but at some point after Bruno fails to show up at the meeting, several Penan make an expedition to the holy mountain of Batu Lawi to search for him. The details of the investigation are scant, but here's what I do know. They track a series of machete cuts through the brush and find what they believe is the last place Bruno slept. From there, they follow his trail to a swamp located at the base of Batu Lawi. But beyond that, there's nothing, no signs of what direction Bruno might have taken from there. If he did make it through the swamp and up the mountain, he would have eventually reached a wall of limestone, 328 feet ascending straight up into the clouds. Even the Penan believes summiting Batu Lawi is a death sentence. So if Bruno made it that far and something happened to him, there's no way he's getting rescued. There's only one other clue of what might've happened to Bruno. Right after his disappearance, the Penan noticed an influx of military choppers over the area. The Penan think they could be searching for Bruno if they heard he re-entered the country illegally. Some theorize that Bruno was spotted by the military, then possibly captured, arrested, maybe even killed. Then again, the helicopters could just be keeping an eye on the unrest between loggers and indigenous groups in the area. By September 2000, five months after Bruno's disappearance, there's still no news of him. John Kunsley and a few of Bruno's closest friends meet at the fund offices to figure out next steps. They've already sent their own helicopter into the jungle, but found nothing. The Penan are their best resource for locating him, but their efforts have also proven fruitless. So the following month, Kunsley gets the attention of Switzerland's Federal Department of Foreign Affairs. They make Bruno Manzer's case a high priority, but since he entered Borneo illegally and has been labeled a criminal, Swiss authorities have to work discreetly with the Swiss embassy in Malaysia to investigate. This investigation still appears to be closed to the public, but I do know the following month, Kunsley gets a confidential memo from the Swiss embassy saying, quote, it can be assumed that most probably nothing serious happened to Manzer, that he wants to remain undercover and is even politically active. Now, I have no idea what made them say this. If they spent any time interviewing the Penan who actually carried out a search, they probably would have come back with a completely different answer. Because by this point, the Penan are confident Bruno either died trying to scale Batu Lawi or was captured and is being held prisoner somewhere, either by the government or the loggers themselves. Remember, there was a rumored bounty on Bruno's head and plenty of people had motive to kidnap him. 
so the way I see it, the Swiss embassy just wants this case off their plate. But that doesn't stop the Bruno Manzer Fund from taking one more look at Batu Lawi itself. In December, the foundation sends a group of people to Sarawak to team up with the Penan. This time, they plan to get as close to that peak as possible, regardless of how dangerous it may be. They make it to the base of the summit, where the limestone begins its 90-degree climb. If Bruno decided to scale it, he would have had to leave his 60-pound backpack somewhere in the area. Except, yet again, they find nothing. No bag. No footprints. No body. No sign Bruno ever even made it this far. Which is why Bruno's brother Eric feels confident his brother was captured and murdered. After all, Bruno spent years in these jungles. He'd survived lethal snake bites. He once spent hours dangling from the side of a cliff only to make it back safely. Bruno had looked death in the eye several times before, and he always made it out alive. But Georges Ruick knows his friend is not immortal. It was only a matter of time before one wrong move cost him his life. And Georges thinks Bruno wasn't at the height of his game when he ventured back into the forest in 2000. He was older, out of shape. He wasn't in the best state of mind. And something might have happened to him because of that, either accidental or planned. There's a major detail that suggests Bruno was ready to leave the world behind. On February 14th, 2000, just before Bruno trekked back to Southeast Asia, he drafted his last will and testament. He said how he wanted things to be distributed in case of his death. And apparently, he told a few friends this was the last time he was going to Borneo and would likely disappear. It seems like this is exactly what Bruno planned for, to wander off into the jungle and never be found. It's a poignant ending to a complex story, which brings me to another point. Throughout my research, I found several ethical conversations about whether Bruno had a white savior complex or appropriated Penang culture. Being white, it's not my place to make that call, but I can address what I understand to be true about Bruno. He may have taught the Penang certain tactics, but he largely let them fight their own battles. He spent weeks at a time trekking the jungle, physically removing himself because he knew the war wasn't his. And when he saw he was causing more harm than good, he left Borneo altogether and brought awareness to the cause in other ways. I can recognize the problematic aspects of Bruno's story, like his belief that he could become fully Penan, while deeply respecting what he did to help his chosen family. But Bruno's influence was nothing compared to the power of the logging companies and the government. By the time Bruno vanished in 2000, as much as 85% of the Penan rainforest was gone. Many Penan were forced to sell their indigenous land to loggers and assimilate into modern society. It broke Bruno's heart. The Malaysian authorities succeeded in silencing Bruno Manzer, maybe without ever laying a hand on him. Bruno's story is a hard one to tell, mainly because it represents our own lack of power in the face of wealthy corporations and the governments that support them. It's so easy to feel helpless and overwhelmed, 
But I can promise you, activism does work. In 2010, 18 different Penan communities came together to create the Baram Peace Park, 1,095 square miles of preserved land, much like what Bruno Manzer was helping the group fight for in the 80s. The park allows the Penan and other indigenous communities to continue their traditional lifestyles and maintain the resources needed for their survival. However, the Penan are still fighting to get the government of Sarawak to officially recognize the park and grant it protections. It's an uphill battle, but conversations are happening, and so far, the government and logging companies have been respecting the property, which is certainly a step in the right direction. I think one thing Bruno Manzer failed to consider was monumental change does not happen overnight sometimes not even over decades. It takes years of tireless work, fighting for your beliefs and changing people's minds. It's a shame he never got to see the full impact of his legacy or what his Penan friends have accomplished in saving their home. If you want to help the Penan and other indigenous communities affected by logging in the rainforest, consider donating to the Bruno Manzer Fund or discontinue your use of palm oil the industry accounts for an estimated 42% of the deforestation happening in Borneo. What we consume affects the products that get made. Only buy certified and responsibly sourced wood products and switch over to recycled paper instead of fresh fiber products. I know this seems small, but these choices can create a butterfly effect we don't always see. And besides, We've got to start somewhere. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. Of the many sources we used for this episode, we found Carl Hoffman's The Last Wild Men of Borneo helpful to our research. For more information on the Bruno Manzer Fund, go to bmf.ch. That's bmf.c like Charlie, H like hotel. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Lori Gottlieb, edited by Karis Allen and Aaron Lan, fact-checked by Anya Bayerly, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Aaron Larson. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, The Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. 
If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible. So we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. 